All right, we'll wrap up those conversations. We're going to hop into uh, Matthew chapter 11. Today's one of the first times I didn't have someone looking at me and tapping their wrists. So we're making progress, Cascades. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 20. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew now for just over a year, and last week we jumped back in. And we looked at Jesus' words to John the Baptist as he's imprisoned, and we're going to carry on and looking at the, what happened after that. So this is what it says, Matthew 11, starting in verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you, you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have been remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Verse 25, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have give, hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus. You know him like no one else knows him, and he knows you like no one else knows you but he has come to make you known. And so we pray that this morning we would hear from him and that the eyes of our hearts would see him and the invitation that he has for us. For your glory we pray and for our joy. Amen. So this morning we're going to break what we've just read into two halves. And so the big idea that ties them is that Jesus is our coming judge and our present savior. He's our coming judge and our present savior. Here's what you need to know. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, these were three villages that were very close to each other on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Peter, Andrew, Philip, James, and John, they were from Bethsaida. These are Jesus' disciples, right? These Matthew, the tax collector, when we read through the Gospel of Matthew, we see that he is called by Jesus in Capernaum. And Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law in Capernaum as well. So this play, these places that Jesus went to and did these mighty works were places where people did respond. These disciples responded. They became Jesus' disciples. They're, they're from here. But there were others who didn't. And when Jesus says, woe to you, woe is another way of saying alas. Like, as if there's grief. 
Alas, Chorazin. Alas, Bethsaida. Alas, Capernaum. It's an expression of grief. Jesus is actually grieved by the response of these cities. Why is he so grieved by that? Why does he warn of this judgment to come? It's because they saw Jesus' mighty works, his most mighty works, and they failed to turn to him. He's not determining what will happen. He's, he's, he's warning them of, of what is to come, what will happen if they fail to respond to him. If you read in Matthew 8 and 9, the chapters preceding this, you'll see Jesus is healing people of skin diseases, illnesses, bringing people to life, restoring people's sight, giving them the ability to walk, forgiving sins. It was this comprehensive restoration. People were physically restored to how their bodies were meant to function. They were socially restored to community. They were no longer excluded because of their disease. Spiritually, they were restored to right relationship with God. They were no longer in any spiritual debt before God. And Jesus was showing what his kingdom was like through these very acts. And what was their reaction? Well, we're told they were intrigued, they were astonished, curious, but unwilling to entrust themselves to Jesus to his message, to his way. That's why verse 20, we're told they did not repent, meaning they didn't turn around. Jesus, the Messiah, and God incarnate walked among them, called out to them, announcing that the kingdom of heaven had come, showed them what it was like, and they stopped to watch, and then they just kept walking away from him like nothing had happened. Miracles, these mighty works of Jesus, were intended to lead to repentance, to turn around from our old way. And when God moves in this way, it's meant to lead you and I into repentance as well. That's their purpose, to point you to Jesus, to validate who he is and what he says. But people in these cities treated them as if they were more like entertainment. Intriguing, maybe he's like a magician, or worse, someone that's being used by the devil to mislead people, like some of the religious leaders were saying. So Jesus says, woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Capernaum. Because they were complacent and comfortable and indifferent. And their underlying issue was pride. This need to live without reference to God. It's living in reference to what we alone think is best, right, true, and good. And it's so deeply rooted in this people that they couldn't even recognize the Messiah standing right in front of them, even though they're supposed to be the people who are waiting for them. Now, here, here, here's the thing. We read this, and it's like they are, we are not them. We read this as if this is not us. And so we're like, man, what's up with these people? And I was thinking, um, I was talking with Lindsay, and she reminded me of a story of a friend of mine who was a camp speaker, and he, uh, there was this dance party that the campers were having, and he picked up one of the campers and put him on his shoulders. And over time, he started to smell something pretty stinky, and he thought it was just the kids around him, bad B.O. or, or something else. And he, he just kept acting like it wasn't there, but it got stronger and stronger and stronger. And after a while of holding the kid and dancing, he started to realize there was something running down the kid's leg and down his shirt. And he realized that the thing that he thought was pretty stinky, was trying to act like wasn't there, but he could smell it and started blaming in his head the other kids, was actually on him. And you see, that, that kind of dynamic is like us when we read stories like this. We don't want to think that we could possibly be like people in those towns. And so we just think of them as, that's not us. 
But I think there's something here for us to hear. See, the consequence of their indifference, their refusal to change, their passivity towards Jesus and his mighty works is judgment, not in that moment, but on the day of judgment. There's this warning. There's time. That's why he's our coming judge. But he's making that declaration, that warning. See, the day of judgment was this day when God would judge all evil in the world. Human, evil done by human beings, by spiritual beings, all of it would be judged. Demons would finally be destroyed, and God would undo the work of evil in the world and completely restore creation and humanity. That's why it's so significant what Jesus is doing when he says the kingdom of heaven has come, and he begins to restore people because he's showing them what is to come. Justice would be rendered by the Messiah, the anointed king. That, and part of this justice would be, yeah, judgment, but also renewal of his creation. Sodom was this infamous city that would fare far better than Capernaum on that day because they would have actually been more receptive to Jesus than Capernaum was. If there's a people who need to hear this message this warning, I think it's actually the church. It's the people who consider themselves insiders, who feel like they already know, who feel like they're already around him, so they don't actually need to turn. Jesus judged the places where he had been and done the most of his work, and his presence without change can lead to judgment. So where is Jesus most present now? It's among his people. That the Lord inhabits the praise of his people, that he's present among his people, that he makes his people his temple. So if we believe that, then the life that he calls us to actually requires change, ongoing change. Not a one-time thing, but an ongoing thing. And this message of judgment is not directed to everyone. It's not directed to the brokenhearted, to the repentant, to the poor in spirit. It's a message that he directs to those who in his presence aren't making any decision to turn to him, to be changing their whole way of life. And one of the ways to, to think about this is this guy, Frederick Dale Bruner, he'll say, every member of a church has Jesus. For Jesus is present in his word, people, and sacraments. But Jesus does not have every member of his church. He only has those who, under the impact of his miraculous grace, are actually changing. He's talking about here, like, the, the visible church. Jesus doesn't have every member's heart, because not every single member has given him their heart on an ongoing basis, so there aren't, they aren't changing. So you can be around Jesus. He can do these mighty things, and maybe once in your life, or around other people in your life. You can spend time with other Christians without Jesus having a hold of your heart. Your heart as in the center of who you are, the center animating part of all that we do. He doesn't have that. And so there isn't any real transformation, just the facade. And if that's you, Jesus will say, alas, Alex, I am grieved because of you. I've been present. I've been speaking. I've been working mighty things around you. You haven't been willing to turn around and come to me. You've been comfortable and complacent with the appearance of goodness, but not the real thing. 
You thought it was making one decision to come to me when that decision was meant to be the beginning of a daily practice of coming to me and following me. See, some of us act like that repentance is a one-time thing in our lives. Like changing our whole way of life is a one-time thing. When repentance is, is a daily thing, and when we think of it as a, just an occasional thing, maybe that we do when we, uh, our disordered way of living harms others in noticeable ways, we're missing it. We're missing it. Origen was this church father who lived in the second and third century, and he highlighted the threefold nature of the debt that we owe. The Bible talks about sin and debt. See, we owe debt to God, to others, and to ourselves. And for this reason, Origen will say, while we are alive, there is not a single hour, day, or night when we are not a debtor. And so that's why daily we need to confess our sin, but actually turn from it. Turn away from it. And that deep-seated pride that we can see in these cities, it's actually present in us. It's what ails us as well. And when we refuse to give Jesus all of ourselves, when we choose to remain unmoved by Jesus' presence, his words, his people in our lives, we inevitably find ourselves tired, weighed down, and exhausted. Because living without reference to Jesus cannot lead to spiritual, physical, personal, or social flourishing. It leads to restlessness, anxiety, and a lack of peace. So how does Jesus respond to this? When we read through it, it's, you know, it, it's not fun to read this part and when we begin to apply it to our lives. But then we carry on reading and we see that's not the only thing Jesus is saying. So how does Jesus respond to this issue that ails our hearts? Well, this is why Jesus came. See, before the creation of the cosmos, there was the triune God. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, exist, existing in perfect love, intimacy, community. And it was so good that God said, it's so good, I cannot keep this to myself. Let us make humanity in our image so that they can experience this life with me. And when humanity rejected their purpose and chose to live without reference to their creator, it brought restlessness, conflict, anxiety, and death rather than flourishing to his creation. And God didn't choose to abandon humanity, reject humanity, or give up on them. He came to us in and through Jesus Christ, the Son, and he calls to them. And that's what you literally hear Jesus doing, is calling to us. He is our present Savior. And so Jesus will say in verse 28, these famous words, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I want to highlight three imperatives. And the material that I'm going to share here I've adapted from a guy named Daryl Johnson. These three imperatives. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me. Come to me. Let's look at that first one. Come to me. If you want to know his posture to the world, in light of all of our brokenness, it is come to me. Come. That's his posture to you and I. The prophets before Jesus would call people to follow God. 
Rabbis declared, hey, this is the interpretation of the law that you should follow. Greek philosophers would point people to a set of ideas to live by. But Jesus doesn't do any of those things. Jesus will say, come to me. Not come to this movement, set of ideas, teachings. No, he says, come to me, follow me, learn from me. In John's gospel, he'll say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to know what God is like, come to me. You want to know how humanity is meant to live? Look at me. And this message is not for the complacent, for the proud, for the know-it-alls. Who are the people that Jesus is saying, come to me to? Who are the people that Jesus believes can actually become like him, and be with him, and do the things he does? It's the people who are weighed down by the brokenness of life, who see and feel the gap between what is and what was meant to be, those who are sorrowful, those who are burdened, those who are burdening themselves with too much, those who are exhausted, who feel burnt out, wearied by so many concerns. He says, come to me. If you're overburdened, come to me. If you've overburdened yourself, come to me. If life has exhausted you, come to me. If you feel exhausted because you feel like in your life, you're like Dory and Finding Nemo, saying, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. And you say, just keep going, just keep going. But even when you finally stop physically, your mind can't. Jesus says, come to me. I'm tired. He says, come to me. I'm weary. I'm burdened about the climate crisis. He says, come to me. I'm weighed down by the cost of living in this city. Come to me. I'm exhausted by division and strife that I see all over. Come to me. I'm wearied by the suffering of the poor in our world. Come to me. I am tired, but I keep resisting your love. Come to me. I'm prone to rejecting your ways, Jesus. Come to me. I have been far too comfortable and complacent. Come to me. I find it hard to believe you will lead me well. Come to me. All who are overburdened can come to me. And if we're honest, many of us are. We are weary and we are burdened. And yet we struggle to say no to more. We say yes too much. We overestimate our capacity to focus, to work, to do more. And so Jesus says, look, if that is you, you are qualified to come to me and become one of my disciples. Come to me and I will give you rest. That is the promise he says. The promise he makes to us is that if you come to him, we will actually find rest. And in the Greek, it's literally, I will rest you, which suggests this involvement of the rester. You can come and take a day or a week off in your life, and you'll notice, because I've experienced this, you can have a day off or a week off, and you don't actually feel that rested. But Jesus is saying, if you come to me, you will find rest. You will have the rest that you were meant to experience. The first time we see this word rest in the Bible, it's in Genesis 2. It's basically page 2 of the Bible. Genesis verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. It's not talking about God's people resting, though. It's talking about God resting. God blessed and made the seventh day holy because on that day he finished the work he had been doing and he rested. Now, why would God rest? What does that even mean? Did he stop sustaining creation? Did he just remain still? Was he in neutral like you put your car in? No. 
God rested means God entered into the purpose for which he created the world. He created the cosmos and everything in it, and when he did, it was whole. The biblical word we'd use for whole is shalom, wholeness, complete, peace. He created this complex system of life that was whole, and his rest was not because he was tired, but in order to enter into and delight in what he had made. He rested into that wholeness. Come to me, and I will bring you back to the wholeness you were created to live with. I will restore wholeness to your soul, to your minds, then to your bodies and relationships. We are burdened and weary because we have not found the rest we were made for. So how does Jesus intend for us to then enter into this rest, to give us this rest for our souls? He says, take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. And this seems counterintuitive because yoke is a symbol of work. It's not a symbol of rest. It's not for sitting. A yoke is a heavy crossbar laid on an oxen to force them to drag farming equipment through a field. It literally was meant and created to help an animal do more work, not less. People were wanting release from their yokes. So why would we put on a yoke? It's because we've been wearing the wrong yoke. The reason you and I are tired, weighed down, exhausted, overwhelmed, is because we've been wearing the wrong yoke. We're not wearing his yoke. Rest and renewal comes with his yoke. In life, every single one of us will wear a yoke. And it's not a question of whether or not we will. It's a question of whose yoke will you wear. Another way of framing this is, whose disciple will I be? It's not whether or not you will be a disciple, but whose. Take my yoke upon you. Put it on your shoulders. Take off the yoke you've been wearing and put on mine, Jesus says. So what is Jesus' yoke becomes the question. What is this thing that is like a burden that is on top of him, but it enables him to do what he does, that drives him? What is his yoke? This yoke, Jesus describes, is easy or kind. It's light. It's not heavy. But that doesn't tell us what it is. Whatever it is, it belongs to Jesus. It's something like he wears, and yet it's not something he ever takes off. He has worn it since before the creation of all things. And in this moment, he wears this. Some have said his yoke is his teaching. I think his yoke, when you look at the context of our passage, is his relationship with his father. Notice the context of when Jesus says, come to me. Right before that, he is praying and praising his father. He says, I thank you, or some translations put it, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That's the context. From this place of relational intimacy that no one knows my Father, the way I do. No one knows me the way my father does. From this place of relational intimacy and revealing, Jesus says, come to me. He's not just calling us to himself then. He's calling us as he stands in the presence of the father. He calls us to come to him and put on 
the yoke that he wears and has worn. Daryl Johnson says, The secret of Jesus' identity and ministry is, is the Father. His burden is pleasing the Father. Nothing less, nothing more. This is why Jesus can go to Chorazin, Capernaum, Bethsaida, and be rejected by the majority of people there. And having come out of those places, can say, I praise you, Father. This mission to these three places seems like a failure. And yet he says, Father, I praise you. I thank you. He does these miracles, and he can turn and still begin delighting, loving, and trusting and praising his Father because his burden is ultimately to please his Father. That's his measure of success. His burden was not to please his disciples or his family or to please religious or political authorities. None of those things drove him. He wasn't pulled by the demands, though there were tons of them. He was driven by this burden to do what his father wanted. And so Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, comfortable, kind. My burden is light. My yoke fits you perfectly. Why? My yoke fits perfectly, and it'll fit you perfectly, but why? Because my whole identity is bound up with my relationship with the Father. It's in the Father. I know him like no one else does, and he knows me. My yoke will fit you perfectly because you were created and redeemed for the same identity with the Father, a child of God. He knows you like no one else does, and he wants you to know him the way I do. Have you ever bought like a piece of clothing that's just too big, like you thought maybe you'd grow into it, but you're an adult, and generally, if you grow into something that's not something you're happy about. <laughs> or maybe you, you, you just bought something that was just too tight from, from the outside, and you're like, no, I thought I'd fit it, and I was wrong. That will never happen with Jesus' yoke. It'll never be something that fits too tight or that's too big. You were created for a relationship with the Father. That love, delight, intimacy that I have shared with the Father since before creation, it can be experienced. That is what my Father sent me to do, to invite and welcome you in. Do you want to please the Father? Turn around and come to me. Throw yourselves onto me. Lose your life because of me. Open your life up to the Spirit. This is the burden I want for you. Nothing else. So stop carrying those other burdens. Take my yoke upon you. How do we do this? Well, Jesus says, learn from me. Come to me, take my yoke upon you, learn from me. We need all three. We learn from Jesus. And I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases this. In the message, he says, no one knows the Son the way the Father does, nor the Father the way the Son does. But I'm not keeping it to myself. I'm ready to go over it line by line with anyone willing to listen. Are you ready? Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. You see, Jesus is our present Savior. 
but he is also our model who says, come and learn from me. See, he's, yes, he's God incarnate, but he's also fully man. He models the way humanity was meant to live and have relationship with one another and with God. And he says, look, you don't know the way the, the Father the way I do, but come, get away with me, work with me, watch me, keep company with me, and I'll teach you what it is like to live in relationship with him, what it is like to live in right relationship with others. I'll teach you the unforced rhythms of grace. Let me show you how good he is. Let me show you how faithful he is. Let me show you how powerful he is. Let me show you how kind and gentle he is. So that even when you are rejected for saying that you know me, for showing what I am like, you will be able to enter into the joy, the praise, and delight that I have always experienced with him. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus, and his invitation to know you. right now, Lord, we just confess there's moments and parts of our life where we actually are complacent and too comfortable, where we don't want to trust you, because we're afraid, because we want to try it on our own, because we don't know what it'll look like. And yet we also confess, Lord, that we feel that weariness. We feel that overburdened, that part in our heart. And we hear your other invitation, Jesus, to come to you. So right now we want to come to you. We want to take off that old yoke, the yoke that you never invited us to put on. And we want to experience what it is like to walk in the yoke that you describe as easy and light. And God, we confess that in many ways we feel like we don't know how to and we're afraid. So we ask that your spirit would lead us so that we would be a people who increasingly walk with your yoke. That relationship that you have with the Father, help us to walk and experience that too. Your words of love, of kindness, of grace, your words of hope in challenging situations, that we might be a people who, when we face rejection or discouragement, can still praise you and delight in you and make our lives and the measure of our life success whether or not we trusted and walked with you, Father. So we can follow your son in the steps, as he said, that your will be done, not mine. And so we pray as we try to learn from Jesus, his ways, that we would have the power to obey and to trust, to live in a new way daily. Spirit, make us aware of the parts of our lives where we actually have refused to turn so that we might experience the restoration that Jesus came to bring. And we pray this in Jesus' strong and mighty name. Amen. We're going to take part in communion.